This week on the Boag World Show, we're joined by Golden Krishna to discuss the future of user interfaces, a future that may well involve no interface at all. This week's show is sponsored by Media Temple, Fleep, and the never-ending grind of human existence. Welcome to BoagWorld.com, the podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name is Paul Boag. Joining me, as always, is Marcus. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Paul. How are you? How are you? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm very abrupt today, aren't I? I can tell. <laughs> it's because you're, you're trying to get this over and done with because then you're going on holiday. It could be something to do with that, but it's also... Because um, I think I've turned into a little bit of a fanboy and got a little overexcited. Because today we have joining us Golden Krishna. Golden, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Well, as I was saying to you just before we started this call, the entire season has basically been leading up as an excuse to get you on the show. So, <laughs> so there we go. You're too nice. <laughs> I have to bring a bit of balance here. I have to be nasty to you. Golden, you've you've no idea. So... You've no idea who Golden is or what he's done, have you? I had a look him. I looked him up before the show. Right. <laughs> and I actually thought that book sounds interesting. I might buy it. It's worth. It's there really worth go. buying. It is brilliant. So, so for those of you that don't know, uh, Golden has written a, a superb book that I highly recommend called "The Best Interface Is No Interface." Uh, and it, it, the reason it's such a good book is not only is it a really interesting subject, not only is it the kind of thing that um, it is written with this very dry sense of humor that made me laugh out loud on several occasions, but best of all, it's the kind of book that will piss a lot of people off, which <laughs> I always think is a great basis for anything. If it, if it annoys people, it must be good. You know, I used to write a lot of blog posts, and if I only got positive comments, I felt like I was doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah, you've got you've got to annoy the internets, otherwise it, you, it's not happening. You're not doing it right. So, Golden, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit, uh, well, let's start with you. Tell us, what's your background, and, and where are you now, and what are you doing? Yeah, sure. So, I'm a user experience designer. And mm-hmm. and I think what's funny about saying that title is, to the everyday person, that just sounds like bullshit. And <laughs> but what's what's so funny about those three words is that I'm here to advocate for that everyday person. I I do everything I can to understand their common everyday problems, and then I try to use uh, you know technology to try to solve them in the most elegant and delightful and efficient ways that. I think we can, and and I I started my career working at Cooper, which is a design consultancy here in San Francisco, where we you know solve problems for customers of startups and Fortune 50 companies, and and then I went to work for an R&D lab at Samsung, and we created new products and services for you know the electronics giant to solve people's problems, and then most recently I worked for an R&D labs for Zappos, where we created new experiences to solve our problems there. And, and now, actually, at the end of this month, and this is something I haven't even updated my LinkedIn about yet, Ooh. Um, 
this is uh, breaking news here. Yeah, um, we I'm, like exclusives. It, that's a, absolutely what this is. I'm going to be heading over to Google to work on the future of Android um, and solve people, everyday people's problems there. So that's a really, really exciting uh, next step for me. Oh, that does it. Google just kind of, they just swallow any decent talent, don't they? That's that's the way it happens. Google and Facebook and t- maybe Twitter. They're very good at it. They're very convincing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, they, I, Google's notoriously difficult to, to get a job with as well. Don't you have to go about th- through about 300 interviews? <laughs> something that's, like that, isn't it? That's about right. I think it might be yeah. 400, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they have this kind of very collaborative environment, isn't it? And so everybody has to be involved in the interviewing process. Yeah, they they it's, try to remove all the bias from the hiring process. It's, it is a very unusual process. And there's so many people there that they can pull in, you know, people who don't even know each other to interview mm. together on a panel, which is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. But it, it's quite – and that's going to be quite interesting because – traditionally google have been kind of weak from the user experience side of things or the user interface side of things but they've made huge step forwards recently um by recently i mean the last few years but also then you've got added to that your kind of unique approach to user experience which is a lot more than user interface design so i can imagine how that's going to fit in quite nicely in google i can see the appeal for you yeah, absolutely. I think you're right to say that. I mean, they're an, historically an engineering company, but you're seeing mm. a real shift in design leadership in the company. And I think that's what really convinced me as well as just the ability to do so so much at such an enormous scale. Yeah. And, and the talent there to do the kinds of things that we'll be talking about on this show, which I think are really important topics and I can't wait to, to dive into them. I think this show will be pretty fascinating, but... I think there's the ability at that company, and they're, they're certainly not alone in this, um, to start executing some of this, these sort of futurist, uh, futuristic sort of um, user experiences that I think are just around the corner. Yeah. I think it's good. I think it would be very interesting to see what you get up to at Google if we ever get to know. Yeah, we won't be allowed to know. No, like that's the same sort of thing. Well, I'm sure. Me, me and Golden are like that now. I'm sure it'll give me the inside track. <laughs> give me a year. Give me two years, maybe. Well, okay. Maybe an I'll hold you to that. <laughs> so, t- for people that don't know, tell us a little bit about this book that I've bigged up so hugely on both Twitter and the show. What, what's the kind of central premise of the book? Yeah, so, I mean, if you just... It doesn't really take a lot of crazy insight to, just, to sort of just look around and see that we're drowning in screens. I mean, the mm-hmm. in the United States, children spend about two hours a day looking at a screen. Teenagers who are mostly in school spend about seven and a half hours looking at a screen. And, and, and adults, um, at least according to the most recent studies in the U.S., spend about eight hours a day Ooh. looking at a screen. And and, it, and it's crazy. And, and, you know, some people want to blame sort of the teenager at the dinner table who's staring at her phone. But I, I blame the makers. I think we're stuck in, uh, you know, this poor methodology of screen-based thinking. And, and we're trying to solve everyone's problems by using screens. And so we're ending up in this in this world where we're sort of drowning in screens. And, and um, you know, I think if you sort of look back in, in history, and it wasn't that long ago that our lives are filled with paper, and there are some people who dreamed of a paper, paperless world, and now our lives are filled with screens, and I think we should dream of this screenless world. I, 
you know, I actually think that the best graphical user interface is no interface. And that's what mm-hmm. I wrote my book about, about how and why we should build this, this screenless world. So, you know, unsurprisingly, maybe that, that ruffle, ruffled a few feathers amongst user interface designers. <laughs> I like the fact that in your book you have this kind of whole chapter that's just dedicated to, you know, dealing with all of the things that people have said to you about this suggestion. Yeah, absolutely. There's been, a <laughs> there's, been there's not enough pages to describe <laughs> the reactions to the book. Uh, but I, uh, I, uh, I picked the top eight and I put them in there. I must read this book because I haven't read the book. I'm just a bit baffled, I guess. Right, yeah. But- give, give, give Marcus some examples of, of scenarios that kind of show this off of where... Yeah, exactly. what, what, where, what current app or screen-based thing would be better if it wasn't screen-based? I yeah, guess. I mean, there's this, there's this startup I mention in the book called Lockatron. And mm. we've been obsessed with, you know. You've got I, one of those coming, by the way, Marcus. I, before I left Headscape, I ordered a Lockatron okay. for 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 Headscape, so one day it will appear. Sorry, yeah. carry on. No, oh, please, no. please. Um, and you know, just like any company in in sort of re- recent years, they've tried to solve a problem by making an app for that. Um, and their problem they're trying to solve was a pretty straightforward problem, a pretty easy problem of people forgetting and losing their keys. And so they made this cover that goes over a deadbolt, and then they made this app that has these two uh, giant buttons, an unlock button and a lock button. And so you walk up to your door, um, and you press this uh, unlock or lock button, and the, and the door opens. And, and we think of that as, oh, this is a sort of wonderful uh, screen-based solution. Um, but then, you know, when you, and you look at the UI of it, um, you see these two buttons, you see it's very straightforward. But when you look at the user experience and you start de- delving into what's really happening, it's, what's really happening is something like this. You walk up to your door, you want to open your door, um, you, so uh, you pull out uh, your phone. Uh, you want to open your door, so you press uh, the wake button to wake up your phone. You want to open your door, so uh, you press your thumbprint to, to unlock uh, your phone. You want to open your door, so you press the home button to exit your last opened app. You want to open your door, so you press the home button to exit your last open group. <laughs> you want to open your, your door, so you swipe through a sea of icons to try to find the Logatron app. Uh, you want to open your door, so you tap the Logatron app to launch it. You want to open your door, so you wait for the Logatron app to load. You want to open your door, so you hit the unlock button on the Logatron app. And uh, you want to open your door, so finally uh, you open your door. Um, and that is complicated. That is yeah. not... <laughs> yeah. Whereas taking the key out of your pocket isn't. It, yes. it isn't. And so, so... So you're glad that I bought this for you, Marcus? <laughs> well, so that, that was Logatron's first generation. And then yeah. they looked at it and they thought, can we get rid of the graphical user interface? And, and they had heard a little bit about what I was talking about. Um, and they, they tried to eliminate all the steps. They said, can we just have someone, can we embrace a typical process? Someone's walking up to their door and they just want to open it. Can we do that? Can we, can we eliminate a screen? And what they did is they put a Bluetooth radio into their deadbolt cover and they activated Bluetooth in their app. And when you walk up to your door, the deadbolt just opens when you're within a two-foot 
space of the of the deadbolt, so it just kind of embraces your typical process. And and they and they shifted their thinking from looking at it like we need to make an app, we need to draw all these wireframes and screens, to looking at the user experience and trying to figure out how they can make that the most efficient, elegant thing. And so they they sort of embraced this idea of the best interface is no interface, mm-hmm. which is just uh, just brilliant. Yeah. And the other one you give is the which is very similar is the 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 um, BMW. Uh, I think it was BMW. You know where they yeah. replaced the key with an app again, and you know you have to go through this ridiculous process just to get in your car. Okay, it's I'm crazy. sold. You're sold, are you, Marcus? Yeah. It's got Marcus's seal of approval. I love all <laughs> things like this. Well, you know, the overcomplicating stuff just because you can then get it on your iPhone does annoy me. Yes. Uh, Apple Pay annoys me a bit for that reason. It's kind of like, well, I'll, I'll just give the guy some money. But also, I mean, the the, the thing with Apple Pay, because uh, I'm, I'm quite opinionated on Apple Pay, I think it works. It makes much more sense, Apple Pay, in America than it does here in Europe. Because in Europe, we have chip and pin already. You know, we have contactless with our cards. That's true. Um, and so you basically wave a card over something rather than waving your phone over something. And you don't need to do, a, a, you know, touch ID with it. You know, you literally just wave the card and you're done. But in America, because they don't really have contactless to the same degree, then Apple Pay makes a little bit more sense over there. Mm. But even so, it's, yeah. Apple Pay makes sense. The only thing reason, I mean, I've set it up. Then, but it's basically in case I lose my wallet. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's the only reason for it. Yeah. But as I, keep- I, I, I digress. No, no, you don't. <laughs> there's, this, there's this part in the book where I talk about this idea, something I think is sort of the low-hanging fruit of, of this best interface. is no interface, which are called back pocket apps. And, and by that, I mean apps that work while they just sit in your pocket. And mm-hmm. so this is where Lockatron... Um, falls into it delights you because your phone just sits in your pocket. You never have to remove your your phone from your pocket. Um, mm-hmm. And and we're so used to creating these addictive services that are buzzing and beeping and trying to get us to pull our phones out of our pocket. And, and we can get into uh, that that addiction notion in in, uh, in a little bit later. But I think there's something really fascinating about trying to make experiences that work through and then just when your phone just sits in your pocket. There's this, speaking of Apple Pay, there's this company, you know, Square, it's a payments company. Mm. They had uh, an experiment where they, you could turn on something called Auto Pay, um, and you turn it on to the places you frequent the most. Uh, when you walk up to the restaurant, when you're within 50 feet, which is basically Bluetooth range, um, behind on the register, your name and your most recent orders pop up. Um, and when you come up to the register, with your, when you're within that range, uh, your photo pops up. And so when it comes time to pay, the person behind the register just hits pay and sees your photo. They, they have the ability to delight you by saying, uh, would you like to order uh, that cappuccino again or whatever drink you're, you're frequently ordering? Uh, and they can mm-hmm. see that order history. And you pay and you have the whole experience without ever taking your phone out of your pocket. Mm. And uh, it's just, it's this sort of wonderful back pocket app experience, and there there are a couple of other uh, examples uh, if we want to dive into this theory. But I think that kind of notion, if you look at Apple Pay, taking your phone out of your pocket and you're tapping on something, that feels like just as burdensome. But if yeah. you were to do yeah. something where you just had your phone in your pocket and you're paying, that's that's new. That's yeah. That's different. I mean, the 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 one that I like uh, that I've 
got into at the moment is um i think it's called mac id which is um basically a little app that you install on your mac and you install it on your iphone and once the two are paired now whenever i walk up to my mac it detects that my i've got my iphone and it uses that as an identifier and it unlocks my mac for me and more importantly when i walk away from my mac if i forget to lock it myself it'll lock it automatically so you know Ooh. places like conferences or if you accidentally left your mac on the train or something like that you'll know that that mac is secure because you've just walked away from it brilliant i like that one that's a good one goes to the app store yeah that's that's a good one to have. i tell you what must have really annoyed you my golden is flipping disney right so you write this wonderful book on no interface and then disney released their magic band that must have driven you around the twist <laughs> you know everybody one of the really hard things and and what a lot of people sort of comment on when they talk about these ideas is that it's so hard to predict context right i gave mm-hmm. you i gave you two situations one where you walk up to a, to a cafe or a restaurant um, and another where you walk up to your door, but so often, and this is really where home automation fails in general, is figuring out someone's context and all the things that are going on is really, really hard. But there's one place in the, in maybe the whole world that's absolutely curated in every moment of it, you know, exactly where someone is, and that's Disney World. Mm-hmm. Every part of that experience is handcrafted. And so for those guys, their barrier this contextual barrier, this, this, this layer that's really difficult for a lot of people to figure out when they think about these no-interface solutions, for them, they know. And so for them, it's interesting that they, that they pulled it off and they did it, and it, it's, it's really nice to hear that people are so enthusiastic about it. Um, I am absolutely jealous, and I wish, of course, that I was on that project, but, but it's great to see it, right? Uh, on the other hand, it's fantastic to see people doing the things that I've been writing and, and talking about um, mm. and that, and to see it be such a big success for them, you mm. know, gives it another reason why I think people should be considering this kind of thinking. And it's just the beginning you can imagine for Disney. I mean, they, you know, what they, they're doing at the moment is incredibly sophisticated, but you can imagine how it can be so much more. And what I particularly like about the, the magic band for Disney is that it provides benefits for the user in terms of, you know, you can get into your hotel room with your magic band. You can, you know, uh, pre-order food um, for the ma- you know, using your magic band. The fact that people recognize who you are as you walk up to them because they're seeing, you know, your face on a screen because of the, you know, it knows where you are. All of those things are great magical experiences for the users, delighters, as you put it earlier. But it's also incredibly powerful for Disney itself because they know where everybody is. They know traffic movements of how people are moving around the park in real time. They can put extra staff in certain places. They can begin to, you know, gather huge amounts of data about, you know, traffic movements at different times of the day. So it really is a kind of win-win for everyone. Absolutely. It's huge. I mean, that's huge. You, tra- like camera detection of how people move is yeah. weak. It's not that great. But when you have people intentionally tapping RFID bands every, every mm-hmm. moment where they are, that's amazing. You have yeah. all of a sudden a heat map of everybody's movements through the park. That's, that's really sophisticated data that they have on their hands. Yeah, no, Absolutely.
Right, I'm just going to pause a minute because uh, I want to talk about one of my sponsors uh, and that seems like a, a, as good a moment as any to, to jump into them. Um, and the sponsor is Media Temple, uh, who have supported us through this entire season um, and way before because they support everything. Um, the thing that I want to talk about today with Media Temple, just for a moment, is the support that they offer because I think that is their clear differentiator that is what sets them apart from all the hosting other companies out there yeah sure you can find cheaper hosting um companies but when and if things go wrong you really want to know that you're going to get fast support to get you back up and running very quickly before clients start moaning at you and all the rest of it they've got really experienced support staff who really know their stuff as i've said before on previous shows i can personally attest to this as someone that that hosts with um media tempo and regularly breaks my site as well so you know i really know, i'm you know on first name terms with some of these support staff at this point um they're super fast to answer any tweets emails or whatever you send them they've got a live chat facility so you can talk to them instantly 24 7 call support as well they, you'll always get hold of them um and they're always there to help and they've got this really good systems incident um thing as well which they update very regularly and very very well um i find that possibly the most depressing page on their site because something goes wrong with my website and i think oh media temple they've let me down again something's gone wrong with the site and then i go to the system instance and uh, incident page and see that everything's fine and and that's the moment when I realise that I've managed to break my site. But they don't seem to care. They'll still help me out, even if it's me that's broken the site, which I think is just amazing. I've got extensive self-help resources and an amazing community bef- behind them. And best of all, they're offering a special discount to Boag World listeners. So if you use the promo code BOAG, B-O-A-G, you'll get 25% off of your web hosting. And all you need to do is go to boagworld.com forward slash media temple and enter your promo code on sign up. So thank you very much, Media Temple. I, I kind of... Just want to clarify something with you, Golden, over this, because there will be some people listening to this. Um, and, you know, we, the, the premise of your book is it's got a bit of a controversial title, isn't it? The best interface is no interface. You know, it's the kind of thing that is going to rile people. But you're not suggesting that all interfaces should be replaced with some kind of automated system or sensor, are you? There is still a role for user interfaces. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I love great blog writing, I love good movies, I love to watch videos of stand-up comedy, and I just, I can't imagine how those things wouldn't happen without a screen. I think there are these amazing and brilliant things that can happen about with when you have a liquid display, but I think, and, and I think what's what's important to understand is that there are huge opportunities to reduce the amount of screen time that's necessary in our lives, I it, the best interface is no interface is a it's a design philosophy. It doesn't mean mm. that that no interface is the only solution. It just means it's the best possible solution. Just like less isn't more isn't always true, but less is more is a really nice you know modernist design philosophy. Yeah, and I, I mentioned earlier how people are checking their checking their phones all the time. There was a study done in the UK earlier this year that, that the average smartphone user check, pulls their phone out of their pocket over 200 times a day. That's 
That's <laughs> that's fucking crazy, right? <laughs> but that it's, becomes exercise, surely. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <good for laughs> I mean, it's 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 just it's we've fallen into this this kind of horrible pattern where we're making these intentionally addictive interfaces that are buzzing and beeping to look at their products and services. I, you know, I think I, I know we as an industry can can do better. <laughs> mm. um, you know, good experience design isn't a set of good screens. It's a, it's a good experience. And, and good design isn't about how many taps and clicks you can generate or how addicted you can get your customer. It's about, you know, what I mentioned earlier about solving problems elegantly and efficiently. If, I, if, I, if the problem I was trying to solve was to help people eat a bowl of soup and I made a spoon where it took you three hours a day to eat that bowl of soup, it <laughs> wouldn't be a well-designed spoon. But if the problem I'm trying to solve is to connect friends... And I made a time-sucking three-hour experience where you just filtered photos of their life. I don't <laughs> think that'd be well-designed either. Well, yes, which is very true. And I think another part of this is is our perception of ourselves as designers. And it, it, it was really funny, right? Part of the reason I so loved your book was actually nothing to do with this idea of the best interface is no interface. It was the way you framed the role of a designer because I, you know, I trained as a, a graphic designer because I'm that old and the web wasn't around. And then I kind of, I've worked in, you know, user, user interface design for the vast majority of my career. But then I kind of reached a point where I started to branch out from that. And I started to do, um, it, because, you know, I, I was seeing that the user interfaces that I was creating were failing because of business requirements and governance, you know, issues and all of these kind of back end problems. And so I started to move into that and, and I changed my name and I still keep it, you know, my job title this. I changed my job title to user experience consultant because I didn't feel I could use that word designer anymore because I wasn't opening Photoshop. But reading your book has kind of made me realize, no, I am still a designer. I am still designing user experiences because I'm, I'm solving the problems that damage and create a bad user experience. And, and I think that was one of the big takeaways from the book for me was this idea that we have a very narrow view of, of what a designer is. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a chapter in the book where I, I have a set of job listings from some of the top technology companies. Yes, that and, was it. And and they advertise for these UX slash UI roles. I mean, you see this all the time. <laughs> People talk about, hey, I'm a UX slash UI designer. But user experience, looking at that larger story, like what I gave uh, about Lockatron earlier, and user interface design, which is making you know all the visual components on a screen, and it's a really important job, are very distinct things. And and when you make mm. when you confuse solving people's problems, this larger notion of UX and having empathy and and, and doing customer research, all those all those all those things, and and user interface design, which is drawing screens, then you make it all of a sudden someone's job to solve problems with screens and and that's not a that's not a great thing and so when we conflate the two things um it 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 leads us down this down this strange down this strange path so i mean that that was all well and good but i mean that's a big ask of a lot of designers isn't it because you know i'm i'm thinking about i don't know say ed at headscape marcus yeah. You know, who is a super- 
superb user interface designer. Um, but we're suddenly asking him to kind of understand, you know, to start thinking about areas that are quite highly technical, some of them. When you talk, start talking about sensors and automation and, and that kind of stuff, it, you really are asking people to move out of their comfort zone, aren't they? I, I think what Golden's saying is that he should carry on being a UI designer uh, because he's not a UX designer and that the two shouldn't necessarily be confused um, and that UX designers do need to know about more than just screens and things like mm. that, whereas a user and interface designer, it, it is their job to design for screens and that there's a confusion there that shouldn't be there. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think so. I, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I... There was a there was a time when I talked about this idea at a conference here in Portland, and afterwards there was this young designer who came up to me and said he really liked to talk, but that he hopes that I fail. <laughs> and and he said that because he said, you know, if I'm right, then he doesn't know what he's going to be doing for a living. And yeah. and and what I told him, and and I think. Uh, I think this is absolutely true. When you're a designer in technology, you're always going to be need. You're always going to need to be growing and adapting and changing. I mean, mm. what we do today is is not what we're going to be doing tomorrow. I, I can guarantee that. I, I don't know what exactly it will be, but and I'd love it for it to be a lot of the things that I talk about um, in this book. But you know, the companies, the processes, the tools, they're always changing in mm. technology. Um, but I think there's some fundamental things that don't change. Um, and, and I think even though I'm talking about how you execute something being radically different, I think the way you start, um, if you are a user experience professional, is actually quite similar. It's about mm. understanding customers, observing and understanding their, their goals. Out, uh, if you're more on the business end, it's outlining those metrics of success. Uh, on the creative end, you're getting inspiration. I think that starting phase is, it doesn't change. It's the next stage that changes. I think instead of drawing, you know, what I call a lazy rectangle as a representation <laughs> of a screen and trying to solve everyone's problems inside that that rectangle, where you, you know, oh, how big is the logo? Where does the navigation go? Mm-hmm. And and you're starting to think about these common patterns and libraries instead of thinking about the specific problem. Um, and that is that that second step is where things are, are a bit different. But you know what? The deliverables there and, and what I've been doing are are not um, you know that crazy. I've been doing customer journey maps. So we look at mm-hmm. people and, and the context of the situation. Um, you know, I'm setting up personas. I'm, 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 and, and when I come up with, with solutions, the, 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 um, the testing is very similar. You're making prototypes. You're testing in front of people. I mean, just because I described that, Let's go back to that Locatron experience, uh, or even, even you know, we mentioned the Disney band experience. You can mm-hmm. prototype that. You can have a paper yeah. band around someone's wrist. You can observe yeah, uh, customers and, and users and see what, see what's happening. Those things don't change. What changes for me when you when you take this on is you change that sort of second step. That that mm-hmm. moment when you go to the whiteboard and you, instead of drawing a rectangle, you now start to draw people and places and you understand the context and you try to figure out what's going on in that situation and then you try to employ other tools and maybe you as a, as a designer don't even need to know exactly all of that, but maybe you have a person in the room um, who understands those sensors better, a mechanical engineer, someone who's not normally a part of our design process, or maybe you have a data scientist in the room who's able mm-hmm. to, to come up with solutions there. So maybe the, the end solution is 
it's not a screen how we historically think about it. Maybe it's employing these other people to be a part of our teams um, who help come up with those solutions. But as a designer, it's all, it's all about solving problems and all about empathy. And that doesn't change, I don't think, ever. I think the tools change. I think the eventual execution changes, but but not, not, not the role of being a user experience designer. Do you think it comes down to the fact that we've been quite, you know, relatively isolated in our role. You know, we call ourselves UX slash UI designers. So we, we do, you know, the whole kind of planning of, of uh, you know, you know we, look, we do our research and our discovery phase and we map our user journey. And then we go away and we build our user interface and maybe have an occasional conversation with a developer or a content person. But we're largely self-contained. Well, because this is going to involve areas that we're not so knowledgeable with or you know it's going to be much broader true ux design is much broader we have to collaborate a lot more do you think that that's potentially a barrier in people's minds kind of making that adjustment yeah i mean i'm talking about a different kind of team right when i mention mm. these kinds of things and i try to put together you know all sort of sorts of packets and toolkits and stuff where people can understand sensors better but at the end of the day Having an expert in, in those things is, is is enormous, right? It makes a big, big difference. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that if you wanted to make an app, that was a big barrier. Um, yeah. and, and, and it wasn't even that long ago that, that companies would say things to you like, oh, we're not a new media company. We don't need a website. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, that, and that sounds completely insane now. And, 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 and uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I was talking to uh, sort of an older, uh, uh, older designer, and he was telling me how when graphical user interfaces first came out and everybody was on command line, the idea that you'd have somebody in your company who's drawing icons and, and, and figuring out color palettes was insane. Mm. That, that that was just that was just such a waste of resources that they should just do everything in command line. And so this is part of that, that evolution. I think, you know, when you, you introducing uh, new kinds of, of roles, that's wonderful. That's great. I mean, I'm mentioning things like a, a data scientist who we all know uh, can do great and, and amazing things, but just aren't part of the design process, but yeah. should be, um, mm. but, but should be, shouldn't just be running, um, you know, uh, you know, analytics on, on on something after it happens but we can be part of something proactively before uh and while we come up with a solution for something that's a that's a, a very different way but it's a better way of utilizing the resources that that are out there actually um i'm not inventing something that doesn't exist these are these are people that that um that are out there in the professional world and, and are already working in technology today I mean, how do people, you know, well, I, I say people, how do I, because I'm really interested in this, where do I start going to learn about what is possible and what is not? You know, I've, I've read your book and you give some great examples in there, but I'm still not, you know, kind of entirely clear on my my mind about what could be done or what can be done, because that's half the battle, isn't it? Is yeah. that kind of realizing what potential there is because we fall back on user interfaces because we know that that's possible yeah absolutely i mean i think it doesn't it's not a crazy idea and it doesn't take that much resource resources to sort of like take 20 minutes and think can we solve this without a user interface i meant I, I mentioned that example of you know you walk up to your door you did it that was their first generation product and and I don't I wasn't in the room but if you kind of just took a took a gander and, and sort of like and drew out 
someone a, a person we we so we so often look at wireframes and stills mm-hmm. on a wall without people without mm-hmm. context and we look at this these situations where and, and it totally throws off it biases the whole the whole thing because you do something where you show a client you know 50 screens you, let's say let's say you're trying to do like a sign up process mm-hmm. and and you show a client 50 screens and they look at it, they say this is brilliant this is great. Fifty. You guys have been working so hard. This is unbelievable. And then you show. And then let's say instead you had a more elegant solution. You had a, you had a more no interface solution. And you show them one screen. Yeah. And, the, and the, if you show them one screen instead of showing fifty, they say, "What have you been doing? <laughs> what is this?" And so, and I think that that kind of take on it doesn't work. And, and one of the tools that I've been employing is to use video. And it's something that. I I learned when I was, used to do a lot of sort of deep user research. When I worked at Cooper, we did a, a ton of user research. And one of the things I learned was when you write quotes of what people are saying or you show photos, mm. they're not nearly as powerful as showing video. When you yeah. show someone saying it or you show someone in a situation. So what I've been doing in these in these in these experiences that I've been reducing down or even eliminating interfaces, show a video of someone in a sign up process. Mm-hmm. And you say, Okay, here's somebody setting up um, and they're there, and you see the person, and then you watch two minutes of this video, and then and then and then you say, okay, and then okay, and here's what we could do, and it's mm. four seconds, yeah, and and that is lost, I think, when we do when we have our normal deliverables, when we kind of change the way we look at it, and we spend a little bit of time considering what it'd be like if there was less, or how we could even do that, is is definitely worth. Uh, worth pursuing or even just trying you can't always do it but it's worth trying to see if you can do it do you think i mean we've we've kind of talked about the cultural and mental shift that we need to make as designers but is there an element of that for the user as well it it's a fine line isn't there between delighting them with a very simple you know solution and freaking them out (laughs) because it's almost eerily disturbing do you know what i mean it it knows me yeah one of the one of the one of the industries that started to delve into this and and there there are some startups who are doing this interface thinking which i think is a fascinating topic i think we can maybe talk about one of the industries that's really great at advertising first up and that has been doing some no interface thinking in the last few years is car companies Mm-hmm. And in the automotive space, it's you can do so much. I mean, car companies are also veering down this awful path of creating these 17-inch touchscreen center consoles. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I would rather touch a screen than, than drive a car, I guess. <laughs> I, um, and so, but, but at the same time, there are other people in the automotive industry who are doing some really neat things, right? You have uh, the sort of LED lights that blink on, on the side mirrors when you're about to hit somebody uh, in your blind spot. Um, you have cars oh. now who can um, who detect the car in front of you if it's stopped. Um, they, uh, the car itself uh, hits the brakes um, to try right. to preemptive, uh, preemptively prevent a car accident. There are all sorts of crazy things that cars are doing that are a bit shocking um, at yeah. first. Um, there's, there's some more simple examples. Uh, Ford has this, uh, this trunk, this, this lift gate, where if your hands are full, um, you, kick, you kick near the, the, the bumper and the, the trunk, uh, the door opens. So on big SUVs and, and minivans, you see uh, this lift gate sort of open. And, and the whole idea is you're carrying all these things. You can't pull your phone out of your pocket and uh, do all those steps uh, and jump to an app to unlock 
the trunk or even get mm. your keys. Um, and there are definitely plenty of people who are making these apps unlock your trunk. What they're doing is they're putting sensors in place, and they're like, and what Ford did in that research is they thought, okay, they put things in people's hands, and they said, open the trunk. Mm-hmm. What what do you do? And people started, and they and they reached out with their foot, and, right? And they thought, that's it. We need to create something that when you kick your foot out, the trunk opens. And and it's 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 weird, right? This is this is yeah. unusual. You don't necessarily expect that. And maybe you have your hands full and you do it, and then the trunk opens, and and it feels like magic. It feels unusual. It's definitely unexpected. But if you can do it in an, in a way that doesn't feel creepy where you're where you're trying to solve people's problems in a way that 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 does feel like it's magic and doesn't feel like it's creepy that's that fine line right where where Mm. even i mean even today you could argue that a notification that suggests something to you or or google now or something like that can feel a little bit creepy but i think we get used to it the more the more we see it exposure isn't it really the first, yeah, absolutely. I think the first movers have have that burden, yeah. um, but as as we adopt these this thinking, it's it's just nice, right? It's it's efficient and 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 it just works when it needs to be working. But that's a that's an interesting point. It works when it needs to be working, and you know I I couldn't have got more excited about your book. But the thing that did go through my head is that. A lot of these automation systems don't always have the best track record for accuracy, you know, (laughs) whether it be, you know, if you wear three different step counters on your wrist, it will give you three different numbers or, you you know, you you ask Siri something and it, it, it responds with something completely different. So while an interface, a user interface feels a much more controlled system you know, where you know more where you're standing, it's more trustworthy. Do you think that's a legitimate concern or am I just getting old? No. <laughs> it's, absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely a legitimate concern. I think there are, there are two big things to think about in, in automation. The first is don't automate things that people love to do. You know, if I, mm. if I could automate cooking if i could create something an amazing machine that cooks your favorite meal every day i think for most people that would sound fantastic but if you love cooking and that's mm. where you get pleasure and enjoyment i mean the whole point of this no ui experiences is to give you time to do the things you really want to be doing so you wouldn't want to eliminate the things that people really enjoy doing in the in the u.s um automatic transmission I think this is one of the craziest automated experiences, right? You have you're driving uh, in a car, you're on you're on a highway, you're in this incredibly dangerous situation, and you mm-hmm. have this automatic gear shifting machine next to you. That's crazy, right? That's an, that's automation, and but but and that's really popular here in the U.S. Something in the order of ninety percent of new cars have automatic transmission, but there are people elsewhere in the world who really enjoy and love the idea of shifting gears and, and driving their car and it's less They're popular. stupid people. If I could get if I could get an automated car um it's so difficult over here to get uh, um anything you know, an automatic car. It's just ridiculous. I drive Absolutely. an auto. Oh do you really? Yeah. Well I, I think it's it's if you if you buy new then it, it's easier. But I, it's quite hard to get automatic cars in comparison to America. 
I've got yeah. quite a big car. Some big cars tend to have you do. Yeah. automatic transmission, and smaller cars don't. But yeah, in the States, even the smaller cars do. Yeah. Not true. And cruise control. Everything has cruise control in the States as well. And that's mm. uh, more of an optional extra over here, isn't it? Anyway, I, that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know exactly why. I mean, maybe there's some emissions regulations and whatnot, but I, I, I think it's because people, you know, enjoy. And so there, there are enough people who really enjoy mm. driving, and so it's less popular there. And so that, I think that's one thing to com- consider with automation. But the thing, the, the main point you're raising is what happens when these things fail? What happens when yeah. these things start falling apart? And how do, we, how do we control that? One thing I've been seeing people do that I think is really fascinating is they start to go down this, this path of, of automating these experiences and trying to, trying to shortcut things, is they're moving the graphical user interface from the primary experience to the secondary experience. So, yeah. so uh, there's this, there are some really simple examples. There's this headlamp that a company called Petzl makes. Petzl makes a lot of headlamps. They make one that automatically adjusts the amount of light that comes out of their headlamp. And this is really popular with, with uh, people who do cave search and rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So they, 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 go in, they go into these caves, and they're deep and dark, so they have light. And they look into it like it's really bright, but then they carry these maps with them. And if they hold their map up, to the light, it completely whitewashes, right? So, uh, okay, yeah. So they made these headlamps so that it sees that there's this object here and the light dims. Um, mm-hmm. So they, it's real, and it's really nice because you're holding these ropes, right? You don't want to, you don't mm-hmm. want to be you know, fiddling around with your headlamp. And it's so quick, and it's so, and it's so fast. And it's a very simple computer. It's just one sensor and a tiny microchip. It's not that sophisticated, but it's really popular for that reason. It's this automatic solution. But, but Petzl, that headlamp comes with a piece of software okay. and and you can adjust all of the automatic settings if you don't like them mm. um, and and so you shift the graphical user interface the user interface from primary um, all the things you'd have to do even if they if they made a smartphone app that you had to pull out of your pocket while you're while you're trying to do cave search and rescue that just doesn't work right mm. it, it it works so well in the con- in that context and you shift it from that primary experience you eliminate it there and you move it to the secondary where it's more of adjustments it's more of settings i mean you also see this sort of primary to secondary on 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 the nest thermostat which really mm. surprises and delights people when it's auto- automatically uh, understands when you're home and when you're not, but it al- always has that giant dial on it, so you can you can adjust it. But but the whole point of Nest is you're not going up and adjusting it all the time. You're rarely adjusting it. You're rarely interacting with it. But it's there as sort of a secondary experience, and so that's one. I th- I think that's kind of sort of a hybrid moment, right? We're not going to go from cars with gasoline to all cars being electric. That's just not going to, that doesn't really work because the infrastructure really isn't in place and it's too shocking, almost mm. what you were referring to earlier. So we get hybrid cars. We get this middle step. And I think, yeah. that's, what's, and I think that's what's happening when I see a lot of people executing this where there, there is an interface. It's there, but it's not what you're interacting with every day. It's there only if you need it. Mm. Mm. I mean, that's a, <clears throat> there's another really good example of that, actually, which is similar to Nest, is a, a, a smart thermostat that's um, a, a, over here in Europe called Tadu, which I have in my house. And it, with that one, unlike the Nest, it doesn't kind of work out your, your, your routine. What it does is it, it, it's a back pocket app again. So if I've got my phone and I leave the house, it turns the heating off. Um, so there's that kind of thing. But again, you can 
if you if there's somebody saying coming to stay in the house and you leave the house and it turns the heating off and they get cold you know you can use the app you can get the app out of your pocket and use it as a secondary method to to kind of you know say keep the heating on when i go out so yeah i see what you mean that kind of secondary role i like that a lot that makes a lot of sense to me well i've just got to go back to one point because this just occurred to me right this is about the 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 door lock one Mm -hmm. well if you come back and you've been out all night uh and your phone's died i can't Uh, remember how they do backup on that Mm. Yeah, so there they I I can't run I can't remember everything off the top of my head, but you can do a couple things. One thing you can do is you can set up other people who have permission mm-hmm. to unlock your door. So you could kind of do that in advance so it's not just your phone. It's almost like having a backup key. But I think the reason they set up that that was actually to help people who have Airbnbs. So you can give a temporary without giving mm. your actual key, you can give temporary access. Uh, to yeah. someone, which I think is pretty fascinating. I believe they've also set up a number in that you can text and ask you some some questions that you can you can go through. But I'm not exactly sure about that second case. But it's a good question, right? Um, if we rely on our phones to do everything and the phone dies, um, we're kind of without our key to the world. Um, so that's that's definitely um, a burden. I would just tell you to carry an extra battery pack. <laughs> you could quite easily lose a key of course but yes yeah, yeah, absolutely so you know in that sense it's no worse than what's there at, at the moment also I, like because lockatron um keep emailing me um they're also now providing a keypad to go with it as well if you want so there's a like a keypad fallback as well uh, which would get around the problem mm. I, i've got one last question for you before we wrap up Although, again, as I say, I feel like I say this every week. I can carry on talking about this forever. Um, there will be people listening to this that are going, yeah, this this is great. But uh, they've got to kind of convince managers or clients or other people to kind of think about things differently, to kind of look at automation. And so many managers or clients, you know, go, you, it's easy to convince them to have a new app or a new site, you know, that that's what they, that's in their traditional thinking. It's how they view the world. So how do you get these kinds of people to think in this kind of way, to, to consider these other options? I mean, that you must face that time and again in, in your career oh yeah absolutely i mean i think the first time i ever talked about this somebody asked somebody said hey you know this is great but i'm a marketer he's he's in the marketing department he said i've got all these assets of phones from different angles and people holding these phones (laughs) on the street and, and 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 it just works so perfectly he's like i have no idea how i would advertise yeah. For for these screenless experiences, how how would you invisible. possibly do it? It's invisible, yeah. um, and and uh, <laughs> I didn't have a great answer for him, but that was something that was funny that I didn't ever anticipate. Right? How do you mm. how do you create uh, adverts for something that's not there? Uh, and that's where I think some of the car car examples are really interesting because you're seeing how they who are really car companies are, are amazing at advertising and spend a lot of money on it and so i think that's that's one amazing output but but how do you convince people and so you know i mentioned i mentioned earlier customer journey maps i think that's that's a great starting point mm-hmm. um i think videos which is another thing i, I mentioned is another great uh, uh another great outcome i mean certainly without a doubt when you say this to somebody 
This is new and different thinking, and it's going to be a little bit shocking. But I do think over time, it'll become less and less shocking. Actually, one thing that I'm really excited about is over the course of this year, I've seen a, a number of startups who have been starting to embrace this idea. So, so if, the, if the videos aren't working, if the journey maps aren't working, if the idea that, that we are evolving and at one point we, no one, you couldn't convince anyone of apps and you couldn't convince anyone of websites and now you, can, you, can, you, know, you need to convince someone of this new, of this new sort of approach, if, the, if none of those things are sort of working for you, um, there's, there, are, there are other things, you know, I think that, that, are, that are extremely powerful um, I want, one is just sort of experiencing it, like actually mm-hmm. experiencing the, the the prototype and experiencing what um, what this actually feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is is really wonderful. Um, but but you're seeing all these startups rise, so like that Lockatron example that I gave, right? And I, I don't want to keep drilling this example, but one thing that's nice about it is after they showed the video of this no interface experience, they generated about two million dollars. On Kickstarter, yeah, which is pretty good for a door lock, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 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 they're not alone. So okay, so there, so who else is doing more interesting things or more complicated things? Well, there's a startup called Digit that was launched um, uh, fairly recently, and what they do is they plug into your 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 checking account, and what they're trying to solve is the is is that most people are terrible uh, in the Western world of ha- of having a decent savings account. Actually, in the U.S., the average person doesn't save. 30 days worth of income which which is which is crazy um and and um but we're terrible at it so what digit digit does is they plug into your checking account they see how you're spending money and they start shifting that money to a savings account that they create and they and they get more and more aggressive of uh, of about it <laughs> over time and so you have a bigger and bigger savings account you don't do anything yeah. It's all magic. It all kind of works in the background. In order to interact with Digit, they actually don't even have an app. You you have you can text them, and they'll text you back. There's people who just text you back and forth for customer service, and that's it. And it's and it, it's great because it all works in the background. Now, the reason I bring up this case, and I could bring up a couple of other startups this year who are doing some really interesting work around this, is because the more success those guys have, it helps mm. you also build a business case to say, hey, look, this isn't just some crazy idea. We can't convince you through these journey maps, through these videos, through the, this evolution, through these prototypes. I mean, there's a lot of tools. You can also make a business case around it and say, mm-hmm. these experiences, I mean, the stickiness of this kind of experience that just works is mm. is incredible, right? When you have to intentionally use something every day and it creates burden in your life, that's you can you might want to leave that for a more fi- for a more efficient or more or maybe a more new popular service. Uh, you know, Facebook is always under attack of new of new social networks that could that could be launched. There's something called Ello, and it's like oh no, all of a sudden all these people are going to move over to Ello, and so what Facebook does is they try to do all sorts of things to sort of like get you you know hooked to their experience, but one way of getting customers loyal is solving their problems in the most wonderful way possible. <laughs> and that, and that's having nothing there. And so, and I think you're starting to see this at startups and not at big companies because it's, it's hard to change that dynamic of that team, right? It's hard mm. to, to change these methodologies. We've been making, you know, these, these screens essentially the same way since the, the early eighties. And, and even though now we can touch instead of, uh, uh, we can touch instead of just clicking, it's essentially the same window, the same mm-hmm. sort of iconography. And we've gotten really good at these processes 
processes. We taught them in schools. We evaluate people based on these processes, based on how well they deliver these screens. But changing it is hard, and institutionally, changing that is really hard at, at a big place. But in a small startup where they can just start in this new way of thinking, they can they can they can embrace these ideas,、uh, and that's what's really exciting to me is seeing startups do it. But I think to answer your question, when you see that success that they're、yeah. having, that two million dollars, or or the idea that that Digit is is accumulating users, and and when they release numbers, it'll be really interesting. And and there's other startups who are doing who are doing similar kinds of things. When you see that bubbling up, that loyalty is is is. Is what every company would want, and and、mm-hmm. uh, and I think that is such a great that alone is is very convincing to sort of the C suite. You know, maybe the other designers、yeah. are are into this idea, but when you tell the C suite, "Hey, look, the number of clicks is going to actually be zero," which is crazy because because、yeah. uh, your stock price <laughs> might be、uh, you know completely you know glued to the number of、uh, of clicks and and number of monthly active users and how annoying we can be in your pockets that use our service, <laughs> but we're gonna have a hundred million people who use this every day and love it. Yeah, that's a that's a mind shift, right? And that and that's kind of incredible.、Yeah. Um, and loyalty is what is what. Deli- loyalty comes from delivering great experiences, and、mm. and that's and that's what you know. This is really going after.、Mm. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. And, and and referring to case studies of people that are doing it well is always a great way. And you know, when you can even point to you know people like major car manufacturers or Disney or people like that, they're investing in this. Then that certainly helps hugely. Golden, that that's absolutely. Incredible stuff!、Uh, it's a fascinating thing, and I highly recommend、um, you get Golden's book if you have an opportunity. The best interface is no interface. It's a great read. It's an amusing and fun read as well, which、um, it always helps. And I did laugh out loud on several occasions. Um, I do just want to, before we wrap up for this week, mention、um, our second sponsor, which is Fleep. So、uh, the best way of describing Fleep is as a alternative to Slack. Now you might be saying to yourself, "Why the hell do I need an alternative to Slack? Slack's awesome." But is it though?、Uh, you know, I'm a I'm actually quite a big fan of Slack, and I use it. And I actually I will be mentioning Slack in a, a few moments. But it does have its limitations, and especially if you are a freelancer or you work in an agency and you work with a lot of clients, Slack only goes so far because Slack requires your clients to to adopt your system. If that makes sense, it requires them to start using Slack. It, it requires them to u- learn a new interface, as, as we've been talking about today. But Fleep, basically, clients can use Fleep just with email. They carry on using email like they always have, and you get to manage it via Fleep. But and here's another really good thing about Slack. One of the most frustrating things about using Slack, if you're working with multiple clients or multiple projects, is switching constantly between channels. You know, 
it's really quite poor in Slack, that, that transition of flipping between channels. But Fleep doesn't have that. You can work directly um, with multiple clients, multiple projects, multiple teams, side by side, all at the same time. And that makes Fleep absolutely ideal for um, freelance uh, freelancers, working with clients, far, far better than Slack in that regards. And um, they've also just uh, launched a beautiful uh, full redesign of all their tools, you know, the Mac app, the, 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 the mobile, uh, smartphone apps, etc. So you can try it out by going to boagworld.com forward slash fleep. Slack, Mark, I was going to say Slack and clients should never be, should never go together anyway. Uh, yeah, not, I don't. Not our Slack channel, anyway. Well, no, <laughs> definitely not. I've seen what Headscape write in their Slack channel. It's not not for public consumption. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> so, Golden, you need to know something about this podcast. Um, <laughs> we've got into this stupid tradition of Marcus doing a joke at the end of each show. Um, <laughs> you just have to pretend to laugh. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, Marcus, this is a good joke, and it's a good one because I think I've said it before and i've done all of them all the good you've done all the good jokes in the world yeah Um, i don't know when though it was probably 10 years ago so i think we can get away with it again okay okay here we go i met a dutch girl with inflatable shoes last week i phoned her up to arrange a date but unfortunately she'd popped her clogs (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's as much as you're gonna get i remember you telling that one before so it must be it's popped her clogs a, a u.s um, term, do you know what that means? No, oh, no. Right. it's it's a term. Oh, there you go, wasted. Ah, right, it's wasted. If you die, you pop your clogs. Oh. It's a kind of um, affectionate term for for dying. Um, for dying. Yes, we're a weird nation, aren't we? <laughs> now you think about it. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, golden. Anyway. Golden, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really, really interesting subject. If people are interested in continuing to talk about um, the, the topics really from this season as a whole, I've now started a Slack channel. See, Slack's good for that kind of thing, you know, which is for groups of people coming together and, and chatting stuff over. So there is, um, if you go to boagworld.com forward slash slacking, or um, you can get an invite, or you can just email me at paul at boagworld.com, and I will invite you into the slack channel it's turning out to be a really nice little community of people chatting about user experience type stuff so definitely check that out next week um we're going to be looking at how to to how ux user experience is becoming one of the most powerful marketing tools you can have out there that that um, instead of just broadcasting your message to the world, that now you can provide a delightful user experience and your customers will promote your service for you. So that's what we're going to look at next week. Um, but for now, a huge thanks, Golden. And um, yeah, good thank luck you with the, the job move. No, thank yeah, you. Thanks. Thank you, guys. It's really been fantastic to chat about this. I feel like we could for hours. There's a lot, yeah. There's a lot here in this topic, and I hope that people find something useful out of it. I'm sure they will. It's, 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 yeah, I'm a huge fan of it. I just, I'm desperate now to crowbar it into a project that, that I can play around with, you know, automated back, you know, um, you know, pocket apps and that kind of thing. Oh, I just, there we go. Anyway, new shiny thing to keep me amused. Um, thank you guys so much for, for listening to this week's show. I hope you found it useful and join us again next week when we talk about UX and marketing. But for now, goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.
Come on, come on.